Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. Are you a fan of true crime podcasts? How about investigative reporting from award-winning journalists? If you are, then you'll want to tune in to the new content coming from Pushkin this summer that you can listen to early and ad-free. Our team has exciting new seasons from podcasts like Deep Cover, The Nameless Man, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern, and Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the woman behind painter Jackson Pollock's fame. Plus a new season of Lost Hills, Dark Canyon, which investigates the dark side of Malibu, California. And a brand new show coming in July called Where's Dia? About the sudden vanishing of a millionaire widow in California. You won't want to miss Pushkin's True Crime Spree coming this summer. And if you want to binge these shows early and ad-free, you can hear all of Pushkin's content by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or by visiting pushkin.fm slash plus. Hey there, Maya Lau here, and thanks for tuning in to Other People's Pockets. Don't forget that we'd love to hear from you at otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com about your thoughts on the show, suggestions, and anything else. And please subscribe or follow this podcast on whichever podcast app you use and give us a rating and a review and tell a friend about it. All of that really helps support this show. If we understand the, the history of these fields and ideas, marketing, advertising, Branding, these are all euphemisms for psychological warfare, information warfare, worldview warfare, propaganda, mass communication. These are all euphemisms as those who created them have self-defined or defined themselves. We have to understand, like, advertising is a vast military operation. This is no different than selling a war. You may remember our episode a while back with Mary O'Hara, an expert on socioeconomic class and social policy. She helped us think about some of the money themes we heard coming up on the show. Today, we're having a similar chat with my guest, Jared Ball. He's a professor of communications and Africana studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore. And he's the author of The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Jared thinks a lot about the way different communities are marketed to and what economic power would really look like for marginalized groups. 
He's also into mixtapes and music, specifically go-go music, and I just thought this conversation was really fun, and I hope you do too. I'm Maya Lau, and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people how much they make and how their finances work, so the questions we all have about money can be a little bit less of a mystery. Hi, Jared. Thanks for joining me. Hello. It's a pleasure. Thanks. I appreciate <laughs> being invited. Can you identify yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Jared Ball. And as I usually just simply say, I'm a father and I'm a husband and uh, two beautiful daughters and uh, a super powerful, amazing wife. And uh, I'm a professor of Africana and Media Studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. and uh, someone who has for a long time supported any number of grassroots uh, activist endeavors and organizations and media that supports those efforts as well. Um, where am I reaching you, by the way? I'm in my home, right? In my home, my okay. home man cave office, whatever, it's, <laughs> you know, in Columbia, Maryland, one of the more famous planned cities in the, in the United States, right in between D.C. and Baltimore. I just have a little icebreaker question for you. What was the last mixtape you made? The la Oh, wow. I don't know. The last mixtape I made, it's been a while. It would probably have been almost 20 years ago. I'd have to look up what exactly was on it. But <laughs> it, it would have been a blend of unsanctioned and not likely to have been promoted forms of radical music and interviews and clips and stuff like that. But yeah, nice. that's a good question. That's a great question. I don't know. Do you make mixtapes in your head now? Like if I were to make a mixtape, I would be thinking about this or that? Most recently, what I've been thinking of are songs I would have liked for my former college funk band to have covered and ways we might have done it. Uh, shout out to Mama's Biscuits, the greatest <laughs> funk band in Western Maryland from 1997 to 1999. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but no, when it comes to mixtapes, I think more uh, in terms of uh, using versions or blends or mixes of copyrighted material that wouldn't be sanctioned because I don't own the copyright or mm. forms of political expression in rap mm -hmm. music that mostly those in political power find untenable. But uh, mm -hmm. um, when I was doing mixtapes that were on CDs and distributed freely in mm -hmm. where I was doing community work or whatever, that was one thing. And it's you never had to worry about copyright. But with everything housed largely digitally, it's hard to avoid that. Harder, I should say, not impossible. What songs would you want to do with the band? So... Last night, coming home from my daughter's soccer game, we were in the car, and uh, D'Angelo's Devil's Pie came on. And, of course, that beat is produced by DJ Premier, who is my favorite. And uh, I would have loved for us to do a version of that, I thought, as I was listening to it. But actually, a lot of what I've been thinking about lately has, has involved go-go music, which is a D.C. In sort of indigenous Black D.C. form of music, for those who may not be familiar, that is live percussion involving what is called the pocket beat or, or, or rhythm. What is that? Can you give us a taste? 
it's a well, I can't perform it, but it's a, it, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a, uh, a polyrhythmic right. right. Mm-hmm. But it's a polyrhythmic, truly authentic African music played and performed by an African descended black community. I mean, it's truly, you know, I think it's the best pocket followed secondly by salsa for anybody who cares. Mm-hmm. So what has been your journey to getting where you are today? I don't know how far back I'm supposed to go, but born, <laughs> you know. No, yeah, I love it. Tell me everything. I mean, right, um, right, right, right. Yeah, tell me a bit about yourself and like why media and Africana studies. Like, how did that develop? So, I, yeah, I, I mean, I was born in D.C. to a politicized couple. My black father was a, a veteran of the civil and human rights struggle. Uh, and the labor movement. My European-descended Jewish mother was uh, a descendant herself of the radical anti-Zionist. Well, her mother was born in Palestine before it became Israel, and they were part of anti-Zionist Jews who supported Palestinian liberation and were very critical of of Israel and were pro-communist and labor organizers. And I just found out a couple months ago that my grandmother was was organizing with many of the women who were killed in the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire. And all of them were put under surveillance, by the way, which I also think is an important point. All of them, we have all this documentation of surveillance on both sides of my family from a variety of state intelligence agencies. So that's fascinating too. But and so I was raised in sort of a politicized environment and encouraged in that direction. And when in college and sort of not really figuring out exactly what I wanted to do and having some physical injuries and some of the sort of my athletic fantasies being derailed and whatever else, it I just saw that being a professor was the most likely profession I could actually maintain and do and not feel completely compromised politically. And then uh, uh, I got into uh, really, literally unsanctioned broadcasting with low-power FM, pirate radio in D.C., and then community radio, sanctioned community radio in D.C., and mixtape radio. So I kind of just developed a love for broadcasting, and I like doing interviews, and I like creating different, politically at least, media. So when I found out years later that even though I didn't grow up with my father and and he died many years ago, it was fascinating to read that he had gone into not only black radical organizing and civil rights work, activist work, but also had begun teaching in the course of that work, uh, lectures and histories on black radical communication, which became sort of the focus of my academic work years later without knowing that sort of, so it was kind of one of those Interesting mm-hmm. coincidences, yeah. maybe, you know. So anyway, so that's that's basically it. Uh, and then I just followed that trajectory through some years with grassroots organizing and activist work. And then once I picked up in grad school the theory of emancipatory journalism, which simply argues that people engaged in struggle be part of developing journalism and media that supports that activist work, mm-hmm. it just became, you know, sort of a wrap. And a, and a, and a, yeah. And was it being involved in the radio that led you into media studies or, I mean, was it a lot of other things too? It was some other things. <laughs> and the reality yeah. is, is the particular field I went into for the PhD, which was media or communication studies, 
had more to do with the program a friend of mine got me in and just want I just wanted to get a PhD so I could teach at a university and I didn't really care what, what it was field. <laughs> uh, so initially I had applied to a couple other programs but then I'm happy it turned out this way because media studies allows it's so interdisciplinary and allows for so many I suppose other fields do too but uh, you know it just seemed it just became an easy right it kind of touches easily everything. applied yeah yeah that's right and right. It, to be clear is media studies different than communications? Like if someone says, I'm studying communications so that I can be a PR rep, <laughs> this is this is different, right? Yeah, so... so this is critiquing fact, media and critiquing communications. Like exactly. your students so, aren't trying to become PR people necessarily. Well, some of them are, but I some just them tell are. them... Yeah. <laughs> well, I just tell them as a point of being fair and declaring bias, yeah. uh, you know, biases that I'm not intending to help them do that. I'm intending to help them become <laughs> critics of that. Um, right. But yeah, I intentionally use media studies, though officially my PhD is in journalism and public communication. Mm -hmm. uh, but because so much of my work was focused on theory and well, particularly qualitative methodology and theory and critique and was an extension of my earlier master's degree in Africana studies, I never was comfortable with communication or certainly journalism, which to your point are more professional studies and literally evolved historically by newspapers so that they wouldn't have to pay for the training of their own future employees. And so media studies is more interdisciplinary, more broad, more humanities than just social sciences, maybe. Mm -hmm. it's So I'm kind of playing a little game when I, mm -hmm. when I, because I, I'm, I'm describing what I do as opposed to what my degree is officially in. Right. So I don't mean to be misleading, but at the same time, I'm trying to be more honest. <laughs> right. You know. You wrote a book called The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power, Media, Race, and Economics. What is black buying power? And in a nutshell, what is it that you are arguing in this book? So the, the sh this, it's, I sometimes struggle with answering this short in, in a quick way, uh, despite it being my main work for a long time now. But uh, because in part because when you say, when you ask what is black buying power. In reality, it's a fantasy. It's a mythology. It's it's a, it's a, it's an advertising marketing ploy meant to help match ad revenue appropriately with media targeting a particular audience to help businesses market their goods. What it becomes in black commercial media and black punditry and black conservative and sometimes even radical spaces is through a, a variety of misrepresentations that I do talk about in the work, it becomes this idea that black people have an actual economic strength that they don't tap into through their own ignorance, with through a lack of quote-unquote financial literacy, through, again, spending money frivolously or not understanding how to invest. It's, it's argued that black people are, find themselves in an unequal in, in largely impoverished space, when in reality, that inequality is baked into the program, so to speak. So really, my work is just trying to, to explain that what is often reported as buying power is misrepresenting ad and marketing messaging for actual economic strength. And when people start basing plans and programs and analyses on this fantasy of this 
what is now said to be approaching 1.5 or so trillion dollars in annual buying power. This argument that Black people have a trillion, more than a trillion dollars that they just frivolously throw away instead of investing and doing what others do and so on and so forth. When you base programs on that and, and analysis on that, it leads to a complete misunderstanding of the economy, how race works, how the economy works, how race within the economy works, how poverty is created, how wealth is created. It just totally obliterates all of that. And that's what I've tried to argue and show that buying power is really a subsidiary of a broader mythology around black capitalism, which is itself a subsidiary argument beneath the broadest argument of capitalism being the only socioeconomic model that we can have in humanity mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and thrive mm-hmm. under. So, One of the things you talk about is how this is perpetuated in music, like in mm-hmm. hip-hop with mm-hmm. rappers like Jay-Z, um, rapping about a type of consumerism that makes it seem as though like it's actually liberating to spend and it just kind of perpetuates this consumerist thing that propels our society but it's that it's not actually liberating um can you can you talk a bit more about that I mean, Jay-Z sort of infamously said in a Twitter Spaces uh, discussion recently that calling him a black capitalist is trying to demean me as if we were, you were in, in the way that we had once been called the N-word. And, and what he's ultimately doing, and has, I would argue, largely been encouraged and deployed to do for decades, is, is to encourage this idea that if we adopt a black capitalist ethic, which had been, of course— promoted famously by Nixon and his administration specifically to rebrand and redefine black power away from socialism, away from uh, pan-Africanist definitions, uh, then we will become successful. So it's just the entire music industry itself, a subset of international conglomerates and advertising, has always been looking to promote versions of varieties of art that will sustain and support their broader political missions. It's not, it's not really that complicated. It's not that deep. Uh, and there's so much information and data and history related to this in terms of shaping the messaging of the music, shaping the, the form of the music, shaping the distribution and certainly the ownership of the music so that the symbolic and material wealth that it generates only accumulates upwards. So Jay-Z, is, I'm arguing, is just, is, is just an emissary of that ethic. So whether he's helping gentrify Brooklyn through fantasies of basketball team ownership or telling Kaepernick and, and others to not take a knee anymore because we're going to have now black owners moving into the NFL and his rock nation is going to take over the Super Bowl halftime show as, as a sign of collective black advance. He's just been long used to, again, confuse the situation. So when many people are referencing Jay-Z, whether it's the story of OJ or other tracks of his for economic analysis and and pointing to his lyrics, which have been reprinted and published and praised and all for from every university all around the world, when they're referencing Jay-Z, who's talking about, I should have invested in this real estate years ago and I would have been rich by now or I should have bought that painting years ago. It suggests that, again, people are poor because they're not taking advantage of of an economy that is there just waiting. Because they're not smart enough. They're not smart enough. They didn't get financially literate. They're too lazy. And it just ultimately all walks us away from the kind of political organization and movement building that would ultimately be necessary for, for the change that many of us want to see. 
small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisions History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits— First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards i'll save you a seat this podcast is sponsored by cloud optimizer as a business owner or it manager are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why it's time for cloud optimizer as you migrate your business to the cloud what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy but cloud optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. 
Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. One of the larger ideas which you which you touched on is just buying power in and of itself. You know, corporations they basically want there to be a middle class because they need people to buy their products. It doesn't do corporations or the 1% any good if there isn't enough discretionary income amongst the middle class to actually buy stuff. So some of it is just like buying power, like this idea of you have power. Well, yeah, but it's what is it for? It's so that the capitalist system can continue to survive. It's not, is it real power? It's a the, the, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad you said it this way because this is a better way to put it. it the, 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 the term power in the phrase buying power only relates to the ability to enrich those who own the economy. So so that's really it. And, and it's it's again, just designed to help them target their ad revenue so they know exactly where to spend to get the most in return from a consumer base. And then the concept of buying power or spending power or purchasing power, which I do know in, in certain spaces in economic studies, have different meanings here or there. So I, I briefly mentioned this and talk about this in the book just in terms of how I'm defining it and using the, the phrase. But essentially, these concepts come out of the issue you just raised, that in the, the turn of the 20th century, the business and political elite was looking to address itself to the growing concerns over a rising working class and labor force that was being ever able to produce more, but was also asking more questions about, well, we're producing all these products and a lot of wealth for you, but our uh, 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 incomes and, and pay and, and wages aren't really going up that much. So those in power started to say, well, we need to come up with cost of living surveys and buying power reports so that we can constantly be on top of reaching a balance between paying people enough that they can, as you said, shop mm -hmm. and keep the economy going, but not too much that they don't mm -hmm. need the job. And then certainly mm -hmm. we don't want to pay them so little that they want to rebel and go on strike. And then, of course, they can't form go unions. shopping, form <laughs> yeah. unions. We don't want any of that. And I quote uh, a billionaire who I thought in one of the most revealing NPR interviews I've ever heard uh, said a couple years ago, uh, Nick Hanauer is his name. He was talking very, I thought, wildly, candidly from his class perspective saying, look, I'm a billionaire. I don't want socialism, obviously. But at the same time, I don't want people being so poor that they can't afford the lattes they're making in their coffee shop, in which case they will then get the pitchforks and the knives and come for us, is what he was saying. So he's saying it's a class interest. So personally, mm -hmm. how do you feel about financial transparency? Philosophically, I'm, I think we should be as open as possible. So, so I say that to say, like, I'm very open. I, I don't have permission to divulge my wife's situation. And I will just acknowledge that she does significantly better than I do. And in general, I think we should all be way more open. I don't have her permission, but I don't necessarily agree with that either. Although, <laughs> I don't know. So sometimes employers put on certain, certain pressure on people. So I have to give that caveat. But, but in general, no, I, don't, I, am, I am for 100% transparency. I think we should talk more openly about our state of affairs, because I think that would quicken the pace of us making real change about it. I don't think we're honest enough. So too much of us live on 
social media fantasies about how we're all doing. Mm -hmm. Can you say how much you make? Yeah, I mean, I make, I think the official number is 77,000. I I could tell you I net per year. I tell you, Mm -hmm. so, well, and then I just realized, I just thought about this. I keep forgetting this. It's technically for a nine-month contract. Technically, I am only working nine months of the year, although I, I arranged to be paid over 12 months. I need to double-check this, too. But I think I get $5,000 per class. Mm-hmm. So I know I net $1,576 every two weeks. Okay. How do you feel so, about how much you make? Relative to the real world, where because I pay some attention to economic data, I feel great. But as a tenured full professor on his 18th year at his current institution, it is an embarrassing low punishment, actually. I don't know if I could say literally, because I don't think I could prove this, but it is basically a punishment. Um, like you are getting paid less than your peers at your school. Absolutely, or absolutely. And I've, because I've even somebody yeah. doesn't like you, or because it would take probably a good several hours for me to lay off the full okay. context to make it make sense. <laughs> but the rea- yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm actually being literal. There's so much that has gone on, so I can't prove that. But when you look at my record, my seniority, and then I literally because I wrote this up to pitch this case to the president. And it's all public record. Um, I, I work for a state university, so it's all public record. I looked up the salaries of my peers. And I'm paid, not only am I paid less than my peer peers, I'm paid less than people who are significantly my junior in terms of rank and seniority, and I would even argue production. Um, in fact, a couple of years ago, before they let her go, because she took similar political positions that I had been taking, one of my former students with only a master's degree was making more than me uh, in my same department. She was hired into our department with a master's degree. Not only am I a full professor and tenured, but I have an in-field PhD. So I was in the mm-hmm. School of Journalism at the time. So by that standard, I'm being paid almost half what I should be making. So how does it feel to know all that? I mean, I I can't compare my situation to yours. I've been underpaid and had the receipts to prove it. And it felt crappy because it was like, it would almost feel better if I didn't know, if Mm -hmm. I just suspected. But knowing that they know that they're paying me less and that I'm still working there was hard. Like how, and I'm not saying you need to feel that way or, but how do you feel about about knowing that <laughs> it's incredibly frustrating. I can't. I, it's it's. Uh... Do you have debt? So, yes. So, now again, fortunately, I don't know how she, my wife walked me through the process, and we and we both got our student debt wiped out which is nice. remarkable. Recently? Yeah, like within the last two months, three months. Congratulations. Very recently, yeah. Oh, I mean, it was... It was How much was wiped out? Oh, wow. Mine was... It was collectively well over 300000 I mean, it was... Yeah, I, yeah. I mean... Congrats. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. Um, but we still own two houses, you know, we rent a house and we have our own house that we still owe on. And um, 
How much do you I, owe? I think that's it. At this point, we probably owe all told about seven hundred, six hundred fifty thousand. Yeah. Do you have savings? We have because I just got a Freedom Scholar Award of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars last year. We Congrats. have. Yeah, thanks. That was pretty cool. We have uh, 49000 We have about 50000 in savings for our daughter's college. Um, well, I want to ask you about some themes that have come up in the various conversations that I've been having with various people about their personal finances. And I'm not expecting you to be an expert. This is just a time for you to riff on things as if you're like, you have a drink in your hand and you're just like, this is what I think. Um, okay. Okay. So one of them is this idea of we are our own life raft. This is not word for word, but we've had a few people on and I have uh, one couple in particular and they kind of kept saying, you know, we live in LA, we're both from the East Coast. We're all we got. There's no safety net. There's no safety net in the U.S. or very little. Um, it's on us. So it's not necessarily irrational to try to make good money because who's going to help us when we get sick? So, yeah, what do you think about this idea that, like, we're our own life raft and you do have to kind of be smart about money to make it in this world? So I don't condemn the thought, I mean, at all. Uh, if anything, in general, I'm, my arguments are always focused less on, within reason, individual choices and focus on what their options are and what's encouraging these choices. I mean, to your point, I have very left radical views, wildly left radical views, but I can't just expect others to adopt them or to accept them given the current condition you just outlined there. I mean, what... What incentive is there for people not to spend a bulk of their day thinking about how to better make money and bring money into the house? I mean, that's the whole point. And I think that's, and by the way, studying a little bit of the, prop, the history of propaganda in this country, this mm -hmm. is this has been a design of the business leadership right. for about 150 years. Create a situation where working people can't take a minute to breathe and right, think of a think different world. Or, yeah. and, and that's it. So, right. Yeah. So I, 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 fully understand what that couple is saying. And I just want to encourage as many of us as possible to find time and energy towards that organizational effort that we need in this society. So, Because we can't function in a world going forward where everybody's on their own. The people who are wealthy haven't created that wealth on their own. They haven't created a society that produces that wealth on their own. They haven't done anything on their own. So this idea that, that we should be on our own at the point of needing something is absurd. We've all pitched in already to everything. So we should all be benefiting more from all that the society produces. And that part has to be built in to whatever world that I think we should be looking to create. So another idea I would love for you to chew on is the idea of passion work. So... Mm -hmm. We had a guest come on and really make the point that women's work often exists in the margins, definitely more in her generation, but it still exists where because of caretaking responsibilities, because of this and that, women often find work sort of in the random spare time they have at odd hours or later in life than they might have wanted. 
And sometimes that involves creating a business out of their side hobbies, out of these interests and these passions. And there's not always a path to economic success from that. And there's sort of this myth out there that, like, you follow your passion and it all works out financially. (laughs) And no one sits you down and is like, no, that is not necessarily the case. So, yeah, any, any thoughts you have on this, like, myth of the passion job? Or that if you do what you love, you never mm-hmm. you never have a day, work a bad day, day at work yeah. or work, work a day <laughs> in your life or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's yeah. In fact, if if I if I remember correctly, there's even been some recent studies that have come out showing the exact opposite, that the more you do what you love for work, the less enjoyment you get from it. So because it's a job. Because it's a job. That's the yeah. whole thing. I mean, I right. love Africana studies. I love media. I love studying. <laughs> I love teaching. But Having to do it as much as I have to do it, having right. four classes a semester, right. having a five-day-a-week schedule this semester, which right. is just ridiculous. But anyway, you know, the more I've moved into the YouTube space and been reading about it and, and trying to learn how it how it works, there's a similar pattern I'm seeing there as well, where people obviously, compared to, you know, a, a meaningless job that you hate, doing a YouTube show or running a channel based largely on what you're interested in is more exciting. But even there, over time, I mean, you have to, if you really want to build a platform, you have to do certain things business-wise. You have to do Mm -hmm. certain things organizationally. You have to do certain things in terms of the amount of content, the form Mm -hmm. of the content, the this, the that. You have to do a lot. And then you have to get the business side together, get your AdSense money together. You got to get your bank. You have to do, I mean, so then it's like, oh my God, I just wanted to read and talk or whatever. I just wanted, you know. So I'm ending where I was in the last several questions that we need a different societal arrangement so that not everything is reduced to what will earn me something to live off of. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite and most damaging stat that I learned recently is that from 1992 to 2012, Black people created over 2 million new businesses and the rate of capture of national sales revenue went down from 1% to 0.3%. Mm. In, in other words, black people can create all these businesses based on things mm-hmm. that they love and want to do. But if you're targeting a community that doesn't itself have money, if mm-hmm. you can't get investment to scale up, you know, then you're stuck. And then you can't hire anybody. You can barely pay yourself. You have to get another job to support your own work at your own business. It's it's madness. So even then, it's not a guarantee. This idea that everyone can go start a passion project mm-hmm. business is, I mean, ultimately, some of us have to work. And some of us, have to, mm-hmm. going back to our previous conversation, have to earn enough to shop at and buy your product. And I would need you to earn enough to buy mine if we're all in business creating something. Right. So we need something else. We need to revisit what an economy can look like and a society can look like. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. 
Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Can you say more about why the myth of black buying power circulates so heavily in black media circles and not elsewhere? This is why we need class analysis. The shortest answer is because a black business elite, a black bourgeoisie, has taken advantage of this to, so that they can collect their own ad revenue. And because they control most of the popular media outlets that target black audiences, 
they can run the story and recirculate the mythology. So, so what they're saying is they want to promote the myth of black buying power because they want to be able to tell white advertisers that there is money for you if you spend your ad revenue with me. Mm-hmm. And being commercial media, they know that they need that ad revenue for their own well-being. So it becomes this incestuous relationship that only ultimately negatively impacts the analysis of the mostly Black target audience. It has a long history uh, and has been misunderstood and misrepresented by the entire political spectrum in Black politics. So everyone from, at one point or another, you know, Malcolm X to Minister Farrakhan to conservatives like Larry Elder, everyone has, at one point or another, bought into this and and regurgitated it. You know, in fact, even Garvey at one point, Marcus Garvey at one point joked in an op-ed to Du Bois that this is the one thing he said that we agree on, that there is this buying power that Black people have. Now, some, you know, like Du Bois and Garvey had more radical purposes for the buying power, and then there are others in the more conservative wing of Black politics that have more conservative, business-minded, strictly business-minded goals and aspirations. But it's really just the regurgitation through these more commercial presses. I'll call at least they're commercial, maybe not always fully conservative, but commercial presses that allows for it. And then the scandalous journalism that, you know, accommodates the recirculation of the myth. And then you add into all of that and a variety of other mythologies, this very specific and repeated myth, it's a tough nut to crack. Is there any good that comes of the myth of Black buying power? Like, I'm thinking of um, Fenty Beauty by Rihanna, as I understand it, was smart in offering different, more shades, like being aware of more skin tones than like traditional big makeup conglomerates were offering, that there's a more visibility. Is there like good that is done by saying like, oh, look, there's this whole market out there that we have not been advertising to? It's a good question. And again, this is this is where things, I think, get a little tricky and nuanced. I mean, this, and this is why Kwame Ture said in, in terms of this issue of visibility, that Black visibility is not Black power. So if the goal is power, political power and economic power, or if, there's, if the goal is an end to inequality, if the goal is a collective empowerment, then no, nothing good comes of the myth. It's not even to say that some of what you've described and the people involved, it's not to say that they're bad per se, but they do distract from and mislead and lead away from the understanding that I think is necessary to get us where we need to get. Uh, So the more Black celebrity and symbolism and diversity is promoted, but within the context of the confines of capital and commercialism and corporate and business and it, 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 it's, it's going to... It's ultimately it, it makes, all about how does this make money? And if you can replace, and that's why his phrase of almost 50, 60 years ago is so powerful. It's still, I mean, it's so prescient even. Because if you can replace actual power with simple visibility... Mm. It's a contradiction. I'm massively impressed by a system I abhor. You know, like I, I am really impressed at the ability of the messaging to work and for the, to be successful to the extent that it is. It's ultimately all marketing. Yeah, absolutely. Which again, if we understand the, the history of these fields and ideas, marketing, advertising, branding, these are all euphemisms for psychological warfare, information warfare, worldview warfare 
propaganda, mass communication. These are all euphemisms as those who created them have self-defined or defined themselves. So we have to understand, like, advertising is a vast military operation. So selling hair and, you know, is, is no different than selling a war. What do you indulge in financially? Indulge? At this point, I mean, my indulgences are the— Even if it's small. Yeah, I was going to say it's 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 uh, like the, the, the bougie craft beer— that I drink. Okay, like, okay. Which know, which like, kind are we talking about? Oh, I don't know. I don't have a particular, but they're all like locally yeah. brewed, craft, mm-hmm. high, they're usually IPAs. Copy. Stuff you can never get in, in you know, regular liquor stores. And I've become just very bougie. Like I won't, like I can't, <laughs> I, yeah. I, you know, like in that regard, you know. Um, I probably spend too much on my. Uh, I have. I play one Xbox game. I play FIFA on Xbox, and I probably spend too much on that. That would probably be another indulgence. I would add to. How that. much is that? Um, the game is a hundred dollars, and then I don't know how much. I, I'm afraid to even know how much I spend because they have all those in-game purchases that you can get. Mm. So it's it's probably. I would say over the course of a year, I probably average three to five hundred more per year. Um, one one last question for you. Sure. Who's okay? This could be a person who's a celebrity, or it could be somebody that you know, or anybody. Whose personal finances do you want to know the truth about? <laughs> What's my guy that runs? BlackRock. Larry Fink? Is that Larry Fink? They got to be a billionaire. Yeah. Yeah, Larry Fink. I don't, I want, it's got to be a billionaire. So let me know if you get him. I'll definitely (laughs) keep my alerts over to see if you get Larry Fink. (laughs) Jared, thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been really fun. It's been fun for me too. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Other People's Pockets. If you like the show, please tell a friend and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Word of mouth and reviews really help us. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vang. Our executive producers are me along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. A special thanks to Go Go Music. Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. You can sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. Find me on Twitter at Maya Lau or on Instagram and TikTok at It's Maya Money. And we'd love to hear your voices. This week, we want to know, has being transparent about your finances ever been a bad thing for you? Has it ever blown up in your face or made you more skittish about talking openly about money? Leave us a voicemail at 323-540-4255. That's 323-540-4255 
or record a voice memo and send it to otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. Are you a fan of true crime podcasts? How about investigative reporting from award-winning journalists? If you are, then you'll want to tune in to the new content coming from Pushkin this summer that you can listen to early and ad-free. Our team has exciting new seasons from podcasts like Deep Cover, The Nameless Man, from Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern, and Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the woman behind painter Jackson Pollock's fame. Plus a new season of Lost Hills, Dark Canyon, which investigates the dark side of Malibu, California. And a brand new show coming in July called Where's Dia? About the sudden vanishing of a millionaire widow in California. You won't want to miss Pushkin's True Crime Spree coming this summer. And if you want to binge these shows early and ad-free, you can hear all of Pushkin's content by becoming a Pushkin Plus subscriber. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or by visiting pushkin.fm slash plus.